Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. Supply chain is right at the center of so many of the use cases that we work on with this auto ID technology that this show is focused on. So I've been delighted to get a chance to talk with one of the experts in the field, Bob Treblecock, who's Editorial Director at Supply Chain Management Review. And in our conversation, we talk about the future of supply chain, where it's headed, demand chain, what is it, how uh, brands and retailers reacting to omnichannel, and What's happening as a result of the crisis that we're going through that's impacting all of our lives? I think you'll find it interesting. It was certainly a fun conversation. Uh, have, a, have a listen. Check it out. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot. Intelligence for everyday things. Powered by IoT Pixels. Bob, welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, it's a privilege to have you on. Um, you are the editorial director at Supply Chain Management Review, which is like the Harvard Business Review for supply chain. And uh, I've got a whole bunch of questions for you. I want to get your view on why we are where we are, uh, uh, enjoying this situation that we yeah. are with chaotic supply chains uh, and then there's some things that I think are relevant to our listening audience, which is, um, you know, our brands and retailers uh, ready for omnichannel and, and, and getting into what demand chain is and, and where things are going to go into the future. But as I was looking forward to our conversation, uh, I, I was sort of asking myself, well, you know, why are we talking about supply chain? We're, we're a podcast about auto ID and indoor location, but... Clearly, the technologies that we follow are really coming to bear on supply chain. So why, why is supply chain important? And I, I think um, the question is almost redundant for anyone that's living in the UK, which I don't anymore, but apparently they've got cardboard cutout pictures of, uh, of vegetables in Tesco's. Um, <laughs> we're looking as people that have to exist in this economy uh, at spiraling inflation, which seems to be driven by the supply chain. Our lives are dependent on the supply chain with vaccines, shortages and uh, PPEs. The whole state of the world is, um, is, is really being driven by supply chains. You look at the, uh, what China is doing 
in order to secure its supply chains and uh, historically Suez crisis crises uh, things like that are being driven by supply chain we have climate change uh, being um, I think our way out of the climate change crisis is actually driven by efficiencies that we can gain in supply chain technology and then you look uh, just at our day-to-day lives and the giants that are successful, uh, are really successful because they've mastered supply chain. You look at Tesla, Apple, uh, further back Dell, uh, their positions are driven by supply chain. And then you come back to, well, how do, how do I become successful in the supply chain? And I think part of it is technology. So that's why we're talking to you. And I don't know whether you have anything to add or disagree with my little monologue on supply chain, but what are your thoughts? Well, first, nothing to disagree. Um, you know, it, 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 we're at this kind of weird, I guess it's like everything in life right now, at this kind of really weird point. Um, a year ago, November, um, I was writing my column for the November issue of Supply Chain Management Review, November 2020. Mm-hmm. And we were hearing like, you know, things about the vaccines coming and distribution was going to start to roll out. And it seemed like a pretty optimistic time. And, uh, you know, after all of the supply chain failures that happened um, in the spring when everything shut down, right? Um, And I, I, I wrote this line saying, you know, after all the chaos and whatever, you know, it's supply chain's time to shine or I, hopefully I wrote it better than I just explained it. So I was review. I always review my prior year's column before I write my new problem. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I could just like take that and change the date because we were still in all the chaos and the, you know, the upheaval. And hopefully, you know, 2022 will be um, supply chain's time to, to shine. Um, another sort of weird data point and, um, and I'm sure somebody out there smarter than me when it comes to um, economics and finance and things will will write write in or call in to say why um, you know I I just am completely missing the boat. But a couple of weekends ago, I was reading the the Saturday Wall Street Journal, and I started. Uh, it was during earnings report season, right? Everybody was reporting their their earnings, and we actually just came off a very good earnings report season. So there was an article on Chipotle. And the first half of the article said, um, Chipotle doesn't have enough workers, so they're having to close stores and they can't you know, do their normal operating hours and it's, it's costing them sales. Uh, wages are going through the roof. Their raw materials and supplies are going through the roof. So if you only read those two, those two paragraphs, you thought, oh, terrible, horrible time. And and certainly yesterday, I, I went to the movies last night and um, went by um, the local Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell at five o'clock on a Sunday with football games going on, right? Mm-hmm. And normally there's cars like lined up at Kentucky Fried Chicken. They were closed and they had a sign in the window that they didn't have enough help. So at five o'clock on a Sunday, you know, dinner time on football Sunday, Kentucky Fried Chicken was closed. You read the second half of the Chipotle earnings, and it turns out that their profit margins have never been better, mm-hmm. that despite all the closings, they had record sales, 
and their stock has doubled in 2021 to $1,800 a share, which means it was $900 a share at the end of 2020. And, um, and I know that it was in the mid 400s in like 2017, 2018. So in a matter of, you know, three or four years, their stock has quadrupled. So, you know, to quote Charles Dickens, since you're uh, a Brit, is, is it the best of times or the worst, or the worst of times or the best of times? I'm going to reverse it, right? And I read down and there's um, CSX Railroad's um, earnings report. Same thing, top two paragraphs. Um, their, you know, their auto business is tanking because the automakers can't make cars, so they're not shipping cars. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, they can't hire enough engineers, so they're having to, you know, um, not run all the, the routes that they want to run. Um, wages are going through the noof. It's it's the worst of times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's right before the guillotine comes down at the end of uh, you know uh, the tale of two cities. And then you read below and it says, oh, meanwhile, by the way, our intermodal business has gone through the roof. It would be even better if we had more chassis. Um, it's so good that we're telling commodity um, producers that we don't want to haul their stuff. Oh, and we just we just reported record earnings. So. You have this interesting dichotomy out there that, um, on the one hand, businesses are really struggling around supply chain issues. On the other hand, um, really struggling around supply chain issues. On the other hand, um, supply chain issues. On the other hand, um, it have been two points better. Okay, but 5.8% is considered like a raging economy, right? Um, yes. two, two points yes. better is, sure. But but two points better isn't sustainable. You'd really have inflation going through the roof if we were at nearly eight yes. percent um, GDP. Unemployment's at four point six percent. So, not to minimize you know people out of work and all of those things, but if you look at the raw numbers, it's any administration would be thrilled with those numbers. Um, if, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Th- just to interrupt, so, so I, I guess to, the takeaway is that there's some definitely some, uh, overall th- things could be a whole worse. Yes, uh, there's some winners, there's some losers, right. uh, and your mastery of supply chain and I would say the technology that enables it is is a key factor. Um, I want to get into some of these questions that we sure. had lined up, but before we get into it, um, and and. People can go to other places to get this summary, but what's your take on why is it that the bad things that are happening are happening? We have ships that are still uh, sitting outside of the the docks in L.A., and even though the chip companies are doing great, there's a whole bunch of other companies that uh, can't get the chips they need for their products. They're doing terrible. How did we end up in the mess to the extent that it is a mess? How did we end up in it? So two two quick takeaways. Yossi Sheffi from MIT, um, I, I interviewed Yossi one day and he said, um, people say supply chains failed. They didn't. They operated exactly as they were designed to operate. They were designed to operate just in time and uh, and with lean inventories. They weren't designed to operate in global you know, tumult and turmoil and a global shutdown and then startup. So he was saying, we need to rethink the design of supply chains. Um, I interviewed the chief supply chain officer for a um, medical uh, supplies company who said to me, you know, none of these issues are new. By the way, the labor shortage in warehouses and factories is 15 years old. Um, I I gave presentations on it eight years ago. So 
it's none of it is new. The way he put it is all of these things were problems before. COVID just made all the things that were bad even worse. So, so I think there's part of that. And I, I think it really is a perfect storm in that, like in 2008, we shut down. The shutdown was even bigger than the financial crisis, but we shut down because everybody just hunkered down and was going to you know, protect their own. The comeback was faster than 2008 number one. And, you know, the pent up demand was greater than the comeback in 2010 after the 2008 crisis. So I think you had people hunkered down even more. And then the rebound was more than anybody ever anticipated. So people didn't have supplies, didn't have that. And then you throw in a whole bunch of things that might have happened. Maybe one of them might have happened or two of them might have happened. But you had the Suez Canal, um, you know, ISIS had a major f- chip factory burned to the ground. Um, you've had all sorts of, of weather interventions in addition to the Texas thing uh, with like, I live in New England. We had record flooding, you know, this, this summer. So you've had all of those things. And then you've had this thing that I, I don't still don't know what, quite to make of it, but the resignation, like, you know, um, my little town in New Hampshire is kind of microcosm in that New Hampshire has always had low unemployment. Like New Hampshire typically is between two and three percent unemployment. So it's pretty low. Mm. Um, there were help wanted signs everywhere in my little town pre-COVID, but you didn't have Kentucky Fried Chicken having to close, you know, on a Friday or on a Sunday afternoon. I, I don't understand where um, and, and the population didn't suddenly grow during COVID. We've been 20,000 people since I moved here in 1984. So mm-hmm. it's not like there's a whole lot more mouths to feed or um, a whole lot more people buying whatever it is. It's the same population. So how, and, and I, I think that's true most everywhere. So how we went from a tight labor m- market to, I just can't get anybody no matter what I pay them. I, I to life of me, I don't understand. But it seems like all of those things happened at once, uh, along with um, just an incredible spike in pent up demand. That's the best I can give you. Yeah, and it, it's it's amazing that labor aspect to supply chain is incredible. And you're right, it's kind of this perfect storm. I was interviewing someone for a a, a job at Williot, trying to understand what we needed to pay them. And it's always a bit of a delicate subject. So sure. I asked, the, the, you know, what, what, what sort of, uh, what do we have to compete with? What's your total compensation now? This is a technology um, person who kind of director level, uh, who's working at a Fortune 500 company. And he said, oh, yeah, uh, that's uh, about $400,000. I'm like, How can you staff a massive company full of people that are being paid? I mean, obviously, he's not getting a salary check of 400,000, but you had stock stock, uh, programs and that sort of thing. And uh, I don't know, maybe he's exaggerating, but... If if the people at that level are getting that much, then it's kind of hard to operate companies. So, um, so I I, so we are where we are as technologists and entrepreneurs that are designing solutions. We have to try and figure out well what does that mean for the future? 
What is your take on the way what we're seeing now is changing the way systems are going to operate going forward? Well, I, I you know, what the I, I just did um, supply chain management review does a conference called the Next Gen Supply Chain Conference that I did last week. So I'm not pitching the conference, uh, but I, I had some great presenters from some major retailers, Gap, American Eagle, Nordstrom. Uh, we had somebody from GM. It seems to me the um, and, and a lot and, and a bunch of others without going through, you know, the, the whole list. But it seems to me that planning was the first casual first supply chain casualty of um, you know of COVID that um, you had no historical precedent to figure out how to plan your way through it when we shut down and they had no historical precedent for how to predict or plan for coming out of it. So I think um, everybody's going to be rethinking their planning systems and, mm -hmm. you know, what did we learn from this? And, and I think since we're not through it, it's going to take us some years to do that. Uh, I'm hearing from supply chain officers that they're moving from um, just in time to just in case. Um, one of my presenters was Cardinal Health. Now, they're a different organization. You know, if the gap runs out of a blue shirt, nobody dies. But if Cardinal Health runs out of certain things, well, you know, the health of patients is at risk. And the Cardinal Health, uh, President of Cardinal Health definitely said that they're moving to a, uh, to a just-in-case uh, inventory model. Uh, but, you know, planning, he said they're trying to get much more predictive uh, about planning. So I think, you know, coming out of this, companies are, before even rethinking you know, my network and do I have warehouses in the right places and transportation and all of that, that they're really taking a hard look at um, planning systems and saying, how do I get more accurate about planning? Because if your plans are off, kind of doesn't matter if your warehouse is working or your, you know, your trucks are running. Um, then after that, um, you know, the, the all of a sudden went really rampant up in terms of e-fulfillment, e-commerce, and direct-to-consumer fulfillment, that just puts, you know, it takes so much more labor to do that. You think about it, if you're in a pallet-focused warehouse and you ship out, you know, 2,000 pallets a day that have 200 cartons on them, you just shipped out 400,000 units. Well, think of all the stuff in those, in those cartons. And now you're doing the same number of units, but they're going out one at a time. So instead of you know a couple of lift truck drivers moving those pallets, you've got to have an army of people. If you can't get people, that's going to put a real focus on automation. Um, so I mean, I think planning and automation are going to be the the two big themes um, over the next couple of years. Because I don't, I, well, I, I, well, I do think we'll go back to the stores and we're seeing, you know, foot traffic back in the stores. It won't be like it was. And um, so those, those problems, mm -hmm. just those physical problems of how do I fill all those orders uh, is going to, we're going to require changes. Um, and then again, I, I think planning um, at the upper level uh, is really in, um, you know, is really going through a transformation right now. 
th- that all makes sense, uh, and that's what I'm hearing as well. That uh, we, you know, the the retailers that we speak to uh, say, well, yeah, we have to compete with better service, but um, we're actually going to have to do that with less people. Therefore, right. we need to basically tag everything to know where it is. Right, uh, right. Is kind of one of the underpinnings of this, and then we have to have to have the new systems to to use it. Um, and so I think kind of how do I plan for the worst case and resetting and catastrophes, that all makes sense. What, what You talked about just in case as opposed to just in time. Did you get a sense from your, uh, your, your speakers? You know, what does that mean? What does just in case mean? That means that inventory can no longer be the equivalent of a four-letter word. Um, you know, the, the four-letter word before was cash. But people are going to have yeah. to think about, you know, cash tied up in inventory um, differently um, uh, in in order to go forward, particularly in critical industries. Um, and that mm-hmm. may drive all kinds of things. You know, in the in the parts industry, um, it may be the thing that spurs on something like three D printing and additive manufacturing, because mm-hmm. you know there are parts that you you really can three D print and 3D print on demand, um, I think it means bringing inventory in earlier, if you can, <laughs> you know, if you can get it off a, mm-hmm. if you can get it off of a, of a ship. Um, I think it's going to mean if you think you're going to sell, um, you know, a thousand units during the season and uh, you'd gotten used to bringing a hundred units in and then just doing a lot of reorders, you might be bringing 500 or you know 500 units in at the beginning of the season uh, and then doing your reorder um, and again in, in critical industries um, people just saying uh, going back to the um, if I think I need three maybe I'm going to be buy five so I've got two on the shelf just in case very interesting so um Going back to your Dickensian reference, best of times, worst of times, it was certainly the best of times for Amazon, it seems. Right. They just did even better. And that's putting pressure on people or brands, uh, retail brands that have brick and mortar. They have this uh, um, huge cost of people and, uh, and, and, and spaces that they have to deal with. And so they're all doing the omnichannel thing. It's right. like, well, how can we compete with uh, online? Well, we do online, but we do it better because we're using those brick and mortar uh, places for um, people to come to. And maybe we're doing local stocking and we can have a supply chain that leverages that. How ready do you think brands and retailers are to do that, to really do omnichannel or whatever that today's buzzword is of, uh, of, of selling online and selling um, through real stores? Yeah. So uh, a great question. Um, and, uh, and I think the answer is uh, wishy-washy. It depends. Um, you know, if you think of the big guys, Target, Walmart, um, Clearly, they're already doing it, um, you know, and they've made investments in last mile, everything from last mile delivery to whatever else you can think of. Um, if you think of a specialty, I, I, I would think of the Gap as a specialty retailer, the Gap, Old Navy, Banana Republic. Um, they've, they've been doing omni-channel for years and, and are quite successful at it. If you go to a Gap campus, 
they'll have a building dedicated to store replenishment. They'll have a building dedicated to e-fulfillment. They're not doing um, uh, joint inventory. Um, what, what's joint inventory? Uh, one building that can do both um, e-com fulfillment and store replenishment. So they're they're doing a shared inventory. You know, the inventory can stay in a carton and go to a store or a broken carton and, and uh, piece, uh, you know, piece picking. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I know during COVID, they ramped up using their stores as fulfillment points um, and, uh, you know, started doing uh, buy online, pick up in store, curbside pickup, uh, all of those things. I, I think COVID really hastened the development of those kind of, those kind of brick and mortar strategies. Um, even for some companies that already had a brick and mortar presence. I think in some other industries I'd mentioned that um, uh, I had I had the uh, VP of innovation and technology for Pandora, the largest jeweler in, in the world um, on. And pa Pandora had started thinking about an omni-channel strategy prior to COVID, but in the jewelry business, it was still very much a hands-on. I want to touch it, feel it. I want to put it on and see what it looks like, you know, on my wrist and all of that. And uh, they had to figure out a way to, to, to sort of replicate that customer experience online. And then also started looking at, um, you know, how do they ramp up their omni-channel capabilities, working with 3PLs, but also investing in their own um, places. Uh, and then also trying to replicate the customer experience with things like virtual technology or AR um, online. So I think, you know, in some niches, that were very hands-on historically, where people still wanted to touch it, you know, feel it. Um, they're they're ramping up now, so I th I think it's a little bit all over the map. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think every retailer knows they've got to do something. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Yeah, I think that's true. And just as a consumer, I see a huge disparity between what you're told is in stock and what is actually in stock. And uh, the people that do a better job of that seems like that, that to me is, it's not the end of the world, but it's kind of a tell on how chaotic things may really be. And just anecdotally, as a vendor, 
uh, because a lot of our technology is used to address this, then it seems that there's a huge amount of activity going on to retool and an acceptance that it's not just about getting product to the store and having something on the shelf. It's about having the right thing on the shelf because yeah. someone just ordered it online. And uh, um, so it, it's, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's a great time to be in this industry because you're seeing just uh, a whole retooling and re-engineering of the, the systems to respond to this kind of very, uh, this thing that we're all living through that kind of reshuffled the deck. Fascinating. So we've been talking a lot about demand chain um, and I want to make sure I'm not misusing the term. Uh, can you, what's, what's your perspective, Bob, on what demand chain is? Well, the way I think of demand chain is um, Gartner uses the term demand driven, which is the idea of it, 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 in its ultimate form, the idea is I order one, I make one, um, where um, you get much, much closer to customer demand so that you're planning around what customers really want as opposed to what you think they want. And um, so, you know, we're seeing... Uh, I, Gartner came up with that term some time ago, but I, I think what we're doing is seeing now the, the kind of the fruition of that coming into place. And to do that is calling for, you know, all kinds of things that maybe we've done, maybe we haven't done in the past to get more and more visibility, for instance, your space. So how can I capture more and more information, you know, at more and more nodes in the supply chain? So I understand what is my true demand um, and can you know, operate to that demand. Yeah, my take on it is we're transitioning to a point where uh, increasing levels of visibility allow you to make smarter decisions about the way you operate this, uh, this supply chain. If you know where everything is, if you know what's in the delivery vehicle, if you know what's on the shelf, and maybe in the future, if you know how it's being consumed, then that's what's going to allow this major leap forward in terms of uh, uh, even leaner supply chain um, and how you get over, uh, you know, the need to. Sometimes, in some cases, we're going to need to stockpile. In other cases, we are stockpiling in places that just don't make sense where there's no demand. And if we, if we can get harness these demand signals, we can uh, we can move to um, this this uh, future more efficient state. What is your view about what the major trends are for the future of supply chain? What's, what, what's, uh, I won't ask you to make predictions for the future, but what, what, what does the future look like for supply chain? It's not perfect, is it? It's not done. No, I think the, um, the, the two kind of really interesting trends to me, if you read... Um, um, like Gartner's top 25. One is this transition to customer experience or what Gartner calls CX. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with a supply chain leader who has said, um, you know, we used to be a one size fits all cost driven supply chain and uh, cost is still important, but instead of being number one, 
it's number four or five. Customer experience, you know, is number one. And if you think of Jeff Bezos has been writing letters to shareholders for a number of years talking about how, you know, the number one thing that drives Amazon is not the stock price or cost, uh, but delighting the customer. So I think how other companies um, translate, interpret, and and roll out um, the customer experience in whatever industry they're in um, is gonna be you know, a significant trend. Um, I do think that we're seeing post COVID an increase, once again, um, interest in um, uh, the, the social side of supply chain, the ESG. Um, so that sustainability um, governance, um, how my company operates within the community where I operate. Uh, it, it feels as if those things are coming to the fore again, and it felt like they had sort of, you know, fallen to the, to the wayside for a while. Um, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, you know, companies and supply chains are going to be re rethinking their relationships with their employees, just like they're rethinking their relationships with their suppliers. And then I just don't think we can get away from um, automation as a trend and all that that implies. And so, you know, um, if visibility is important to automation, how am I going to get visibility? You know, that's the, the IoT part of it, wherever, you know, companies may play. But how can I get, you know, how can I get closer to a, a true demand signal? And then how can that mm -hmm. demand signal translate back into my operations um, to where I can respond. You know, I, I've got automation in place that allows me to respond to a customer order very quickly. I think those are the three big things that, that I'm watching. I, I think that, um, you know, my observation from our own work is, you know, we're as a company very focused on getting these demand signals to uh, companies. But Unfortunately, just having the demand signal doesn't seem to be, be enough to reap the rewards of the uh, the insights. Suddenly, I know uh, where I'm overstocked, where I'm understocked. But then uh, you have to re retool the delivery systems to go from a milk round to dynamic distribution, and so it seems like there's a lot to come. Um, uh, and that's more of an observation than a question. But I don't know if you've got anything to. Uh, to say about that? Um, no, I, I think you're spot on. Um, you know, I, I think how we get, you know, how we get visibility, how we get closer to that demand signal is, um, is, is a fundamental and underlying um, issue and how we then make sense of even the data that we have um, it is, is a challenge um, right now. But all of those, when, when, when I talked about it, thinking that plant, you know, this emphasis on planning um, is, is a major issue right now. Um, you can't plan if you don't have data. Um, you, you have to have good data. Um, somebody at my conference last week said, um, if you don't have good data, if you haven't cleansed the data, you're making bad decisions in a sophisticated way. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was a great line. So the, this idea of visibility, data, analyzing the data, and now being able to do you know, better planning um, closer to the customer, I think is where supply chain is going. 
Bob, how did you get to be the editorial director at Supply Chain Management Review? Uh, they met me in a bar. Um, I grew up in this industry, although as a as a working journalist, I didn't start out um, in supply chain. But my family, I, I grew up in northeastern Ohio. Uh, my family has been in the industrial packaging business since I was about four years old, and I'm almost sixty six. Um, and and my joke is. Um, most people's dads take them to Disney World, and my dad took me to the Borg Warner uh, Auto Parts plant in North Tonawanda, New York. When I was a kid, um, in the summers, my dad would take me and my younger brother on sales trips with him. And um, uh, and you know, um, growing up in in the Rust Belt, quite literally, I grew up outside of Youngstown, Ohio, which was a steel and auto town. You know, all those small Midwestern towns had a factory and uh, my dad, you know, sold to factories. And so uh, my brother and I grew up seeing um, small town, you know, uh, Midwestern industrial America through the, the back end of a factory. And uh, we really did used to go to North Tonawanda, New York. North Tonawanda is a suburb of Buffalo. And our favorite trip was when dad would take us to Buffalo because he would stop work Thursday afternoon, and we would cross the bridge to Niagara Falls and um, stay Thursday night in Niagara Falls and, you know, do things in uh, Niagara in Canada on Friday and then drive home for uh, for dinner. So my introduction to supply chain was, you know, as a kid growing up, my dad's company, um, I, you know, I didn't go off to college to study business. I was actually a creative writing major and um, I wanted to be a fiction writer. And uh, when I got out of college, I worked um, for three years in uh, our primary business was pallets. Um, today, the family business is still one of the largest uh, pallet manufacturers in the country. Oh, what's um, it called? I, uh, my dad's company it's kind of complicated because there are a bunch of troublecocks in the pallet business. Uh, my dad passed away, um, you know, 2017. My dad's company was called Liberty Industries, and uh, they also had a stretch wrap division called Liberty Technologies. Mm-hmm. And um, there's another family company called Litco International, still around. Um, Litco stands for Lionel Troublecock Company. That's my um, my oldest uh, first cousin. And a third company called King's Company that my dad and my cousin uh, uh, Lionel Troublecock founded. And then there's a great big company called Millwood. And uh, when my dad retired and um, uh, eventually after my dad retired, the Millwood guys, which is one of my another cousin, (laughs) the Millwood people bought uh, my dad's company after my dad retired. So. My dad's company was called Liberty Industries, but it exists as part of uh, Millwood today. And Millwood is a very large um, uh, manufacturer of pallets. Um, If you use CHEP, it's very likely that Millwood um, either built the CHEP pallet or repaired and delivered it because they run something like 27 sortation centers for CHEP. Um, so anyway, I, I, I went to work for three years in a pallet shop. I spent three years on the road um, selling pallets and then stretch wrap equipment, um, which turns out to have been great training for uh, for a writer. 
because you you had to learn, you know, working in the sawmill. I was the only non-Amishman working in an Amish sawmill. So you had to learn culture shock pretty quickly, you know, how to adapt to um, to a completely unknown culture, which is kind of pretty good as a reporter. Um, and then as a sales guys, you know, you get used to cold calls and people slamming doors in your faces, which, you know, <laughs> happens to reporters just like those. So I did that for about six years and um, started writing magazine pieces on the side. My roommate, after I got out of college, had lived in the same dorm as I in college. And uh, I, bought a, um, I, I, I bought a house for, for $13,000 at a VA auction and rented out a room to Jim. And he was a budding journalist. And we started writing um, Sunday magazine articles for uh, like the Cleveland Plain Dealer and places like that. And after doing that for about three years, I um, discovered that I was pretty good at it. And um, I left the family company. Uh, I had an opportunity to leave the family company, starting writing um, uh, magazine articles. And um, I worked in, I guess, what we call mainstream media for about 30 years. That was my primary, you know, it was my bread and butter wrote for Sports Illustrated and Reader's Digest and Prevention Magazine and the Women's Magazines and Boston Globe Sunday Magazine, just about everybody you could think of. I always had kind of one foot um, in, the, um, in the material handling business, um, writing a little bit for the company that now owns Modern Materials Handling, Logistics Management, Supply Chain Management Review. And um, starting around 2000, I started doing more work for them, um, kind of got interested in supply chain, uh, always was a freelancer, never went on staff. And uh, lo and behold, fast forward, 2013, the founder of Supply Chain Management Review, his name was Frank Quinn, kind of a legend in our industry. Frank was retiring, decided he, I think Frank was 70 or 71, had enough. And um, I, uh, I was at a conference and uh, Brian Cirillo, who's now the president and CEO of the company, and Mike Levins, who's the group editorial director, um, asked me to go to dinner with them. And they offered me uh, Frank's position. And at the time I was 57 and um, had been a working journalist since 1980, had written about every story you could think of, you know, 120 times. Had never, had never been an editor and had never run a magazine. And it just seemed like um, a unique situation, one taking over from a founding editor, um, you know, where I was going to be the second editor on the magazine, um, two, taking a shot at, to see if I could go from, I, I describe the transition as going from a player to a coach. Mm. Um, my whole career, I'd been a player, right? Um, somebody would call me and say, hey, can you do an article on X, Y, or Z? And you'd go out there and, you know, and try and put the, the, the story together, write the story um, like a quarterback gets a game plan and goes out and tries to execute the game. Um, editors are coaches. You know, they, they come up with story ideas. They work with an author to develop them. They edit them. They work with the art department to put them together. I'd never been a coach. And um, it, it, it just seemed like an interesting way to end my career. Mm -hmm. And um, given that I'm almost 66, supply chain management review is definitely my 
you know, the end of my, whenever I stop, it's going to be as editor of supply that's chain it. management review. I'm, I'm not looking for another uh, position. Anyway, that's but, how I came to the job. Uh, that's a great story. So player coach, so you're writing as well as editing it now, is that correct? I still do write. I mean, writing is what I did for so many years. Um, and, um, you know, others may disagree, but I think I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> and, um, and I still enjoy it. So I do a lot of writing online. Now in, in supply chain management review in print, most of our content comes at work. We're, we're called the Harvard Business Review for Supply Chain Managers. And so the similarities are that we have a, you know, a senior level audience uh, or an aspirational senior level audience. And most of our content like um, HBR or MIT Sloan Management Review comes out of either the academic research community, the tier one consulting firms or, you know, case studies that we develop with big companies. So mm -hmm. I do like I've done some of our case studies and things like that, but I'm more working with the academic community and the consulting community to develop content. I still write on modern materials handling. I'm the executive editor there and I, I write the cover stories there and do interviews and things like that. But um, on SCMR, most of, most of my job is coach. Very good. And I often, is it like being a, a actor director where you kind of, there's a little bit of a conflict where, you know, you're, you're, as a director, you have to sort of stand back and be objective. Can you be objective about your own pieces or? Oh, I've always, so when you're a, um, when you're a magazine writer writing for magazines in New York, which is like the Mecca of magazine publishing in America, thin or thick skin doesn't even begin to, you know, cover it. Like I've, I've gotten manuscripts back from, you know, from editors with all of the editorial notes that you're usually you wouldn't see. And, you know, they, they, mostly make you want to open a vein and just bleed out, you know? <laughs> um, many of them were along the lines of, is this guy a complete idiot? You know, <laughs> what was he thinking when he wrote that? So I've always been, um, I, you, you, I'm, I've always been brutally objective about my own stuff. Um, and so that part isn't hard. The, the hardest part for me in the transition, you know, not that listeners care about this stuff because it's real insider baseball. The hardest part of the transition for me is um, I was a working writer for 30 years. I mean, that's that's all I did for 30 years. And when I get a manuscript that is in difficult shape, my first reaction is it's faster for me to just rewrite it and turn it into what I wanted than to send it back to the author because I'm going to spend as much time explaining what needs work as I would just to do it. And my, my first reaction is always to, well, I'll just fix it. And um, so that, that's, that's the most difficult transition for me. And frankly, I often end up doing that and then sending it back to the writers and say, you know, what do you think? You know, do you hate me? Did I butcher it? You know, is it still in English? <laughs> um, so I guess the anyway. question is, you know, what can you do that's going to help them do better next time? And is it give them the notes or give them the kind of the model answer? And hopefully if you give them the model answer, they'll actually pay attention and learn from it. <laughs> so that, that's a great question. Again, this is all sort of insider baseball stuff. On modern materials handling, when I assign things on modern, 
I'm assigning them to professional writers. When you're assigning something on supply chain management review, you're working with people whose first job is not to write. Their first job is in the academic community. They're researchers, they're teachers. Um, they've written scholarly journals, which is a whole different thing, you know, scholarly work, which is a whole different thing. Or if you're dealing with somebody at, you know, Ernst & Young or, um, you know, one of the, the big consulting firms, Accenture or something, um, their first job is working with clients. It's not writing. And so uh, this isn't to sound arrogant. It's just that I, I don't know that one set of notes for me helps them the next time around because mm. their day job, similarly, you know, if I went out and tried to sell and somebody tried to give me sales tips, it would be, eh, okay, but I'm a writer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know what, what kind of an impact it would have. So um, on, on modern materials handling, you hope that when you're giving professional writers advice on how to fix their piece, that it sinks in for the next piece they're going to write for us. It's a different thing with the academic community, you know, because it, it, it's a magazine writing is different from um, jur academic journal writing. And um, those are just hard transitions um, to make. So if they've done great research, I can do the rest. And, and frankly, that's what I tell my authors all the time, um, mm -hmm. you know, do the research and I'll, I'll make you sound good. Very good. Well, switching topics ungracefully to music and uh, <laughs> kind of this, this second part of the show is really about the person that we've been interviewing in the first part of the show. So sure. uh, my understanding is that you're, you're into music. And so uh, that, I don't know whether that made it harder or easier to come up with three songs. Uh, made, it, made it harder. So um, you and I could spend the next hour just talking about music, trust me, and songs. <laughs> so yes, I, I, I had um, one of my older cousins was a guitar teacher. And um, when I was about six, I was hanging around his house one day and his guitar was out on his bed. Um, Johnny is um, 10, 10 or 11 years older than I am. And um, he saw me like trying to strum around and whatever. And he said, would you like to learn how to play? And I was like, yeah. So um, I was in first grade. And um, so he told my parents, you know, I'd like to give Bob uh, guitar lessons. And he you know, got me my first guitar and um, I've played off and on um, since I was six. At one point, um, I thought I was going to be a professional musician. I studied classical guitar when I was in high school and I went to conservatory for one semester and discovered that I would starve as a performer. Um, I didn't want to teach and that um, what was I thinking when I, you know, I was good enough to get into conservatory, but it's it's kind of an eye opener when um, I was pretty good as a freshman, but I wasn't as good as the sophomores who weren't as good as the juniors who weren't as good as the seniors and the seniors probably were going to starve too, you know? So, um, so yes. Yeah, so three songs, I picked three songs that made my head explode um, and said, wow. Um, That's high bomb. Yeah, there's a um, there's a jazz he's since passed away a jazz guitar player that I long admired named Jim Hall, and I've seen interviews with Jim and he talks about discovering um, the jazz guitarist Charlie Christian who was in um, Benny Goodman's band, and Jim Hall who's in a, who was just a remarkable player said um, the first time he heard Charlie Christian play he he said 
I didn't know what he was doing. I just knew I wanted to do that. And then he goes, and I still want to be able to do that. So the three things, the three songs that made my head explode, and they're very specific, were um, Purple Haze. Um, I was 12 years old and um, I didn't really play electric guitar. And my older brother came home from college and he put, he, he had this, you know, album cover. And if you remember what the Jimi Hendrix experience, that first album cover looked like, you know, it was like something to a 12 year old in, you know, semi-rural Ohio was like, whoa, what are these guys about? And uh, Rick goes, I want you to listen to this because you play guitar. And he put, you know, uh, are you experienced on the turntable? And the first Mm -hmm. cut is Purple Haze. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what that guy was doing. Um, And just remember thinking, wow, I'd love to be able to do that. I still can't do that. Um, The second, the second, there's actually two here and they're related. Um, My cousin taught me how to finger pick, finger saw guitar. And um, James Taylor came out. And I remember listening to Sweet Baby James and saying, wow, I want to do that. Uh, And I kind of actually can. Um, but back then, so I really was like working on my finger picking and um, got to a certain point and said, I, you know, I really want to learn how to, to get better at that. And I went to a local guitar teacher who was in a, in a rock and roll band, was a great electric player and played, you know, some stuff for him and said, you know, can you teach me how to, to do this? And he goes, uh, no, you're better at that than I am. Um, but if I were you, I would study classical guitar. And I was like, what's that all about? And he goes, oh, like Segovia and Julian Bream. So I went to the record store and bought a Julian Bream album and listened to um, Julian Bream play Bore, which is a Bach piece. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of a famous piece. Lots of people have, Jethro Tull did it on one of the Jethro Tull albums huh. um, as an electric piece. But um, it was it was kind of a popular piece and it turned out to be one of the things that I learned and played to get into music school. So Beret, listening to Julian Bream play Beret, um, just like listening to Purple Haze, it was, uh, Box Beret um, was like, oh my God, I don't know what he's doing, but boy, would I like to be able to do that. And the last one, I study jazz guitar now and, um, you know, not not very good at it, but when I was a, senior in high school um somebody gave me a record called bird and diz which was charlie parker and dizzy gillespie and i like never listened to jazz and certainly had never listened to bebop and i put the first cut on there which is called bloom dido and so similar to like listening to Jimi hendrix and and box beret it was like holy crap i don't know what those guys are doing but wow would i love to be able to do that and i still i've been studying bloom dito you know whatever it is 48 years later and still still haven't learned like charlie parker's solo and you know all of that but um those i guess four if you throw in sweet baby james but those those were like seminal moments in my you know amateur musician life Wonderful. Well, I love this because it's given me three or four albums that I got to now go and oh, there you go. Yeah. probably get and really <laughs> yeah. enjoy. So, Bob, it has been a delight to have you on. I feel like it's a real privilege. Uh, you've got some amazing insights and you've got a great way of conveying them. So um, thanks very much for coming on to the, onto the show. Well, thanks, Steve. It was, it was a, a lot of fun. I appreciate the opportunity. 
Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of Mr. Beacon. I hope you found that interesting. I certainly did. Bob is just uh, an amazing individual with uh, a great perspective on the supply chain ecosystem. If you like the show, please tell your friends, rate or review us on the platform that you use. And please join us for the next episode of the Mr. Beacon podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.